Hey everybody, Magnus here. I'm going to go ahead and issue a Jeff Loeb alert. I'll be talking some more about Jeff Loeb today because my little random generator selected a Jeff Loeb story. So, if you're a fan of Jeff Loeb, well, actually, you may still enjoy this episode, but maybe not. Anyway, fair warning. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about professional football. Actually, no, I don't. I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. It's who I am, and it's what I do, so why fight it? Anyway, today I'm going to talk about 12 comics. That's right, 12 comics for the price of one. You can count them if you want. 12 comics. This is Batman, The Long Halloween, a 12-issue miniseries that probably could have been included in Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, the monthly title that was coming out at the time of this series, but God forbid Jeff Loeb not have a book catered specifically to him. So, anyway, this is a pretty influential series, actually. It carried forward the story that Frank Miller began in Batman Year One, and also showed the transition from Gotham City being populated by mobsters to being overrun by costumed supervillains. This is the, the beginning of that, tran that, that transition. This is the start of all of it. And so, into the summaries we go. This is Batman, The Long Halloween. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Artist is Tim Sale. Letterer is Comicraft and Richard Starkings. Colorist is Gregory Wright. Editors are Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim. At a wedding in June, Gotham City mob boss Carmine the Roman Falcone tries to pressure Bruce Wayne to help launder money, and Bruce refuses. Bruce begins to leave the party with Selina Kyle, but they find Gotham District Attorney Harvey Dent, who's been beaten by some of the Falcone mob. After helping him, Bruce decides to leave alone. As Batman, Bruce enters Falcone's penthouse to investigate. He encounters Catwoman, who flees from him. Batman ends the pursuit to answer a bat signal, and Dent and police 
captain, Jim Gordon, have called him, and the three enter a pact to end Falcone's reign by bending the rules if necessary, but never breaking them. Later, at a meeting of the board of Gotham City Bank, Bruce opposes the position of the other members in favor of accepting Falcone's money. When he proves unable to sway them, Batman pays a visit to Richard Daniel, the bank president, warning him to keep the Falcone money out. Daniel subsequently resigns from the position, and Bruce steps in. In August, Falcone orders his nephew, Johnny Vitti, to take care of the problem. In September, Johnny kills Daniel, gunning him down as he steps out of a theater. On Halloween, Johnny Vitti is shot twice in the head by an unknown assailant while taking a bath. The perpetrator leaves behind the murder weapon, a 22 caliber pistol with the nipple of a baby bottle used as a crude silencer, as well as a jack-o'-lantern. That night, Dent, Gordon, and Batman discuss the murder, and Dent says he doesn't, that he doesn't care about the death of a mafia hitman. Batman notices that Catwoman is eavesdropping, and she offers to help Batman hit the Roman where it hurts the most. His money. Catwoman's information leads Batman and Dent to a warehouse where the Roman has stockpiled over $20 million in paper cash. They, they together set fire to the warehouse and destroy the money. Dent returns home and a bomb detonates, and the, and the DA and his wife Gilda survive. For months afterward, on certain, ho on certain holidays, the so-called holiday killer continues murdering members of the Falcone crime family. On New Year's Eve, Batman's forced to put his investigation on hold to stop the Joker from murdering everyone in Gotham Square with his laughing gas. Meanwhile, Dent's new assistant, Vernon Fields, searches old police files and discovers a connection between Carmine Falcone and Bruce Wayne. On Falcone's yacht in Gotham Harbor, Falcone's son, Alberto, falls overboard, having been shot by Holiday. The murders continue with Dent's investigation into Bruce Wayne coming to a head when Bruce is arrested on Mother's Day. Thomas Wayne once saved Falcone's life after he was shot, and Dent has concluded that a connection exists between the sons. However, the subsequent trial on Father's Day turns in Bruce's favor after Alfred embarrasses the prosecution by testifying that Thomas Wayne's or original report of the shooting never came to light due to the city's long history of police corruption. Batman tracks the Riddler, whom Holiday let live on April Fool's Day. The Riddler explains that Falcone hired him to find out who Holiday was, but kicked him out when the solutions he gave were less than satisfactory. Batman suspects that the Riddler was left alive to spread that the Roman was looking for Holiday. On August 2nd, Falcone's birthday, Moroni is going to trial to testify against him. Before going to the stand, Fields hands him a bottle of acid that a that appears to be heartburn medicine. During questioning, Moroni hurls the acid at Dent, hideously dis disfiguring half of his face. Dent's rushed to the hospital where he stabs a doctor and escapes. Meanwhile, Vidi's mother Carla, investigating the, coroner fi the coroner's files on the, on the holiday victims, becomes one herself. On Labor Day, Dent has been hiding in Gotham sewers for a month. He crosses paths with Solomon Grundy, who attacks him. Dent's able to calm him, and Gordon, meanwhile, has come to the conclusion that Dent is Holiday. Batman refuses to acknowledge it, 
but Gordon demands to hear the truth from Dent himself. Batman questions Falcone about Dent's location. The Roman then accuses Batman of knowing that Dent was Holiday, but standing aside. Batman then seeks out Catwoman, demanding to know why she is so interested in Falcone. She refuses to answer, and runs away. Batman ends up at Arkham Asylum talking to Julian Day, the Calendar Man. Batman tells him that Dent is Holiday, but not how to find him. Calendar Man suggests that, it being a holiday, Holiday, the killer, is probably, gonna, is probably heading out to kill Maroney. That night, Gordon, at Batman's request, moves Maroney to an, a new cell. Holiday surfaces to shoot Maroney twice in the head during the prison transfer and, and his bodyguard several times in, in the chest. Holiday turns his gun on Gordon, who discovers Holiday's true identity is Alberto Falcone. The bodyguard, who is really Batman, beats Alberto so severely it almost kills him, but Gordon stops him. Alberto is placed under arrest and jailed. On Halloween, all of the Arkham inmates except Calendar Man are released by Dent, based on the flip of a coin. Falcone and his daughter Sophia are ambushed in their penthouse by the escapees, and Dent, who has now become Two-Face, and Catwoman. Batman intervenes, but is unable to stop Two-Face from murdering Falcone. During the, fo during the following scuffle, Sophia falls out a window. Two-Face escapes and kills his former assistant Fields for helping Maroney scar him. Later, Two-Face turns himself in to Gordon and Batman. As he's cuffed, he tells them there were two holiday killers. Later, Gordon and Batman discuss what Two-Face might have meant since Alberto has confessed to all of the Holiday murders. They suspect Dent to be the last Holiday as he committed the murders on Halloween. Alberto avoids the gas chamber after being declared insane and is sent to Arkham Asylum, where he occupies a cell across from the Calendar Man. On Christmas Eve, Gilda's packing up boxes for her move away from Gotham, but before she leaves, she takes a box down from the basement furnace. She describes aloud to herself how she read in Dent's case files about the removal of serial numbers of guns and how baby bottle nipples could be used as silencers. She then removes from the box a 22 caliber pistol and drops it into the flames of the heater, along with a familiar looking hat and coat. She claims that she took it upon herself to start the holiday killings in an attempt to end the Romans' hold on Gotham and thus lighten Dent's caseload so they could have a child. Her belief is that Dent took up the killings on New Year's Eve and that Alberto is lying to the police with his confession. She also says that she knows Dent will eventually be cured and that they will reconcile because she believes in Harvey Dent. <sighs> okay, so what did I think? Well, I went incredibly hard on Jeff Loeb's Superman for All Seasons. If you enjoy it, more power to you. Alright? But I thought it was an incomprehensible mess. I then went on the record saying that For All Seasons is pretty representative of a lot of Jeff Loeb's comic book work. By and large, though, The Long Halloween is a pretty enjoyable read. There are some major exceptions to that, and believe me, I'll go over those with a fine-tooth comb, but 
In large part, this is a much better story than Loeb usually writes. In fact, I'd go so far as to put it near the top of the list in terms of good things he's ever written, although I've got a caveat, and I'll be coming back to that later on, but for right now, just bear that in mind. There's a little asterisk beside this. It's at the top of the list. Asterisk. I'm going to come back to that asterisk. But anyway, first off, there's the sort of throwback or period feel to this story. Like, Batman the Animated Series, The Long Halloween has a sort of 1940s flavor to it, but without being explicitly set in the 1940s. And so apart from inviting a sort of noir atmosphere with all those Venetian blinds and harsh lighting and the bowler hats and mob bosses and other crime noir trappings, there's a pretty clear Godfather influence going on as well. Hallie, even some of the dialogue comes off like a hammy 1940s crime spree type of film. So, now, just full disclosure, I'm a fan of mixing Batman into other genres, and I think he really benefits from that, and to me, Defense Exhibit A, well, maybe not A, but one of the defense exhibits is going to be The Long Halloween. Another common aspect of noir, though, is the sentiment that there are no heroes. It's common in most noir stories that it's almost like the takeaway lesson is even the most virtuous person is still shady, if not completely fucking morally repugnant. That's the main reason I think Batman works in noir stories. A push comes to shove. I don't view Batman as a virtuous hero. In a very real sense, he's as morally gray as anybody else in Gotham City, and I dare say more than most. And that's what I think makes stories like The Long Halloween work. It's a noir story, and there are no heroes in noir. And I don't think Batman's a hero, at least in the usual sense of the word, so he's a good match for noir tales. Now, a lot of fans have advocated that The Long Halloween be adapted into a film be it live-action or animated. And honestly, I think Chris Nolan came about as close to doing that as you really can. And the reason for that is because there are so many Godfather references and noir influences that you just can't make this into a film. It works as a comic because it's a comic book commenting on film. But film commenting on film, it just it doesn't work when it's done this way because it comes off as a parody. And The Long Halloween... I guess maybe the best way to put it is The Long Halloween wants to avail itself of the vocabulary of 1940s crime movies and the Godfather films, and that works great in a comic book because it's obviously a different medium. But transplanting those influences back into film would make The Long Halloween into something it, it just isn't. Adapting this thing into any type of film just isn't a good idea. Still, not everything with The Long Halloween is gold. I mean, 
What exactly is Catwoman's connection to the Roman? And how does she know where he stockpiled all of his money? The story makes absolutely no e effort to answer those questions. Catwoman is basically in this story to complicate the plot when it's too close to resolving itself. She doesn't serve much other function. Now, admittedly, there may be some other Jeff Loeb story out there that explains just what the fuck is going on with Catwoman, the Roman, and other things, but that's not the point. This story raises those questions, and it makes absolutely no effort to answer them. And then there's the other can of worms. Who is Holiday? Now, Alberto is caught red-handed and then confesses to the murders. But then Loeb has Gilda also confess to the murders and, not only that, implicate Harvey Dent in the process. So what the hell? Here's what I think. It was Alberto. The Holiday murders required means, motive, and opportunity that Gilda Dent just didn't have. But Alberto certainly did. For example, what would have been Gilda or Harvey's motive in killing the coroner? It's a little self-evident if Alberto was the killer, but it's a lot harder to answer otherwise. If Alberto is Holiday, everything pretty much falls into place. If Holiday was anybody else, you need volumes and volumes of essays to explain how and why. Oftentimes, the simplest explanation is the right one. Here's what else I think. Loeb should have his fucking head examined for writing the story this way. The entire point of a whodunit is to eventually answer just who the fuck done it. And rather than clarify on that, Loeb, intentionally or not, complicated it. Now, my view is that Gilda's supposed confession is part of the trifecta of characters reflecting on the loss of Harvey and what that means to them individually. Each has their own reaction, and it's unique from anybody else's. Gordon is disillusioned and confused over the loss of Harvey Dent. He isn't sure if the price he paid, well, he and the city paid, to bring the Roman down was worth it, considering what happened with Harvey. Batman's determined. He has resolved to not let the loss of Harvey Dent deter him from his mission to rid Gotham City of all evil. But Gilda... Gilda's batshit fucking nuts over the loss of Harvey Dent. The events of this story have basically pushed her off the deep end to the point where she's invented imaginary scenarios where she and Dent were in control over all the chaos that had come into their lives, and she refuses to acknowledge that she's lost her husband forever. It's a lot easier for her to somehow convince herself that she and Dent were behind the murders than to face reality. The problem here is that fans read those last few pages of the 12th issue and took Gilda at her word. They thought she was really confessing to the crime when Loeb more likely intended to show us just how totally crackers she is now. And this is the... This is what's happened to her now that her husband is gone forever. Here's the thing. Any writer 
or lacking that, any editor should know that you don't cast doubt over the climax of your story. The entire thrust of the long Halloween revolves around unmasking Holiday. That's the big picture story of the long Halloween. And the unmasking of Holiday is what the story is building to. The fact that there are debates about Holiday's true identity is all the evidence you need that the conclusion to the story is completely flawed. And somebody should have caught this. Of course, all of this could be easily resolved by Loeb himself, but for whatever reason, he refuses to confirm Holiday's true identity. I mean, all the motherfucker is willing to say is that the answer is in the story. And as I've said, I think the story clearly points to Alberto as the true killer. But the fact that he refuses to go on the record tells me that he doesn't view this train wreck of an ending as the gaping flaw that it is. Here's the thing. The way things are right now, I think Jeff Loeb is one of the most overrated writers in this industry's history. But, I have a very real suspicion that someday, he'll eventually confirm Holiday's true identity. He's going to give an interview with Comic Book Resources, or Bleeding Cool, or Fat Man on Batman, or something, and the truth will come out. This is the promise I make to all of you. As I say, Right now, I simply regard Loeb as being overrated. I'm still willing to read comics that he writes. I just usually go into them on the defensive, as I know it's most likely going to be a completely Swiss cheese plot. But here's my promise. If Loeb ever goes on the record about Holiday's true identity, and if the answer is anything other than Alberto Falcone was Holiday... I'm fucking done with Jeff Loeb as a writer. There are comic creators out there right now where their name alone is enough to keep me from reading. I'm not going to name names, at least not right now. But if I see certain names on a comic book, I don't care how much I love that character or that team. I'm not going to buy that book. It's not going to happen. If Loeb ever goes on the record and says that Holiday was anyone or anything other than Alberto, Jeff Loeb will, eventually, he will officially join that illustrious group of comic book pros who can expect to never receive another dime out of me. I've, I've just been pushed to the breaking point with this guy's writing. And that would be the jump the shark moment for me. At that point, I would be completely done with Jeff Loeb. Now, to be fair, I've heard and read quite a number of interviews with Loeb over the years. And he always, not sometimes, not occasionally, always comes off like a supremely cool guy. In fact, he actually comes off like the kind of dude... You'd want to hang out with and drink beers and just listen to him tell stories, because you know he's got some good stories. He just seems like that kind of that kind of guy to me. He just seems cool. But no matter how nice the dude may seem, I've got a pretty dim view of him 
as a writer. That having been said, though, The Long Halloween is a good, fun story, and I recommend it. You remember that asterisk that I mentioned earlier? Here it is. Like I said, The Long Halloween is a good, fun story, and I recommend it. Asterisk. Unless, at some point in the future, Loeb says the killer wasn't Alberto. If that's the case, I recommend using this trade as toilet paper and Mr. Loeb can say goodbye to any kind of money from me ever again. So that's that. Okay, so I'm going to take a quick break and I will be right back. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G. 
G.com. Take a look around, and I bet you you'll find something. I've got approximately two fuckloads worth of listener feedback to go through, and so rather than talking about yet more comics, movies, TV shows, or whatever else, I'm going to talk about feedback. Thank you for everyone for taking the time to write in. So that's that. Now first, we have an email from my old friend. This is Fanboy MS Prime, the title of which is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Three guesses which episode he's responding to. And Prime writes, Hey Magnus, I liked your review of this story with Michael Bailey. It was an insightful look into the two-part story. The story is one that, like, whatever happened to truth, justice, in the American way, and I assume, I'm putting this on pause, I assume that what he means is what's so funny about truth, justice, in the American way, but I don't know. Anyway, get back into it. The story is one that, like, whatever happened to truth, justice, in the American way, I've read and felt it was a decent story. Not sure if they'd be in my top ten list of Superman stories ever, but I enjoyed them. Would you believe that whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was in a deluxe box set for either Superman Returns or something they did years before Man of Steel came out? It was advertised on an advert for when you walked into Walmart and putting Prime's email on hold. No, actually, I did not know that. Now, for those of you who don't know, there was a point when there was this huge release of uh, Superman material and I want to say it was in the, the fall of 2006, basically what happened was Warner Brothers emptied out the fucking vaults and a lot of stuff that nobody thought would ever see the light of day, fucking it saw the light of day. And going off memory, what I think all of this consisted of was the Kirk Allen uh, Superman serials from the 19... when was that? 1940s? Uh, there was the uh, there was uh, the first season of Superboy, the TV show Superboy. There was, and those things I think most of us didn't think would ever be released. But then there was also more obvious stuff like Adventures of Superman. I think the fifth season of that, the George Reeves show, the fourth or fifth season, something like that, of of, of uh, Adventures of Superman. The third season of Lois and Clark. Uh, the fifth season of Smallville, and just on and on and on. And so they really cleared out their vaults. Everything that they had that they'd been sitting on for all those years, basically they dumped out on DVD to coincide with the release of Superman Returns on DVD. This was all part of their larger marketing buildup. And so several of these things had these deluxe sort of special edition comic books contained in them. And I don't remember every single one that came out. The one that really stands out in my mind was uh, John Byrne's Man of Steel number one. There was a reprint of that in oh lord, it was in some it, it was in something or another. I don't remember. It might have been speaking of things that they released that year. It might have been as part of this huge, just fucking monolithic fourteen de- uh, fourteen DVD, just fucking mega set, right? That uh, Warner Brothers released that contained. Let me think. Uh, the theatrical versions of Superman 1 through 4, the original cut of 
Superman 1. Not the Richard Donner director's cut, but the original cut in theaters. Which I think kind of fucking destroys what I said a minute ago, but whatever. Um, so fuck it, I'm just going to start over with that. Not editing this, this is all just being done kind of in the raw. This 14 fucking DVD monolithic just fucking mega set, right? You could kill somebody with this thing. I'm looking at it on my uh, bookcase right now. I mean, you, th this, this thing is just fucking lethal, right? <clears throat> and um, it had uh, basically special edition versions of all the Superman movies. So for Superman one, you had the uh, the director's cut by Richard Donner, and then you had the uh, the theatrical cut. For Superman two, again, you had the Richard Donner cut, and then the original theatrical cut. For Superman 3, Superman 4, and then also Superman Returns. Extras for each of those, like several discs worth of uh, extras. And then I think there was also this, um, I think it was called Look Up in the Sky. It was a sort of 1938 to 2006 Superman documentary that, uh, that, I think it was Kevin Burns, but it was somebody like that. Some some fucking buddy uh, directed this thing. And uh, basically, the documentary ends with what was expected to be uh, uh, Superman Returns' record-breaking opening weekend. Now, not a whole lot of records were, were broken that weekend, or at least Superman Returns didn't break a whole lot of records that opening weekend, but whatever. Neither here nor there. Um, so I guess you could call that a, a, a type of speculative fiction. I don't really know what to... How to classify the last maybe five or ten minutes of that thing. So, anyway, point is though, I swear to think there was um, included in that that 14 disc mega set a reprint of Man of Steel number one by John Byrne, right? And um, I think another reprint that probably popped up in those um, those little deluxe edition reprints was uh, a reprint of. Now I'm blanking on the issue number, but it was an issue of Superman, also by John Byrne, and it was basically Superman versus Rampage, and so that that was in there, and there was some other shit in there as well, and uh, I think that's what Fanboy Ms. Prime is talking about, but in fairness to him, I never did uh, see a reprint for... Mm -mm -mm. Well, yeah, he yeah he actually specifies uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I don't remember ever seeing a reprint of that enclosed in one of the uh, Superman sets that they released in uh, 2006. Now, bear in mind, I don't own any of them, but I didn't see it for myself in any of the stuff that I bought, whether it was Lois and Clark Season 3 or Smallville Season 5. Um, you know, obviously the 14 DVD mega set or any of the other stuff that I bought. Never saw it there. And I haven't heard anybody else talk about whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow as a reprint and one of those things. So um, all of this is to say that, no, I haven't heard that, and it's actually very surprising to me. Not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying you're probably right. I'm just saying that, no, I did not know that, and that's what you asked me. So anyway, to get back into uh, Fanboy Miss Prime's email, though, he writes, Not disagreeing with Michael on that the story is dark. It's very dark. And Mixie's words are scary as well because he can do pretty much anything he wants. And he wants to commit acts of destruction and violence. He drove men and women that already were morally shady into murder. Kryptonite man going from a C-lister to wanting to gleefully slaughter Superman. And let me just put this on pause uh, again and just say, 
this is a big part of the reason why I'm not big on whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow either. Basically, it was like Alan Moore went w way out of his way to sort of tell a Silver Age type of story. But everything that made the Silver Age, you know, fun and innocent and light and everything, he, he wanted to darken to the nth fucking degree. And it was, it's basically, it's, a, it's like a Silver Age style, sort of, but all of the darkness and all of the murder and all of the just nastiness that we associate with more modern comics. And I don't think that the combination works very well, which is really a big part of the reason why it baffles the fuck out of me when people ever put this on any of their favorite Superman stories. And clearly I'm not alone because... Michael Bailey feels that way, and now Fanboy Miss Prime is on the record here, too. So, there you go. Anyway, speaking of Fanboy Miss Prime, to get back into his email, he writes, And actually, I liked Moore's Wildcats more than this story, which makes the fact that the villain he created in that Dow gets no respect or use by DC in the current version of the DCU weird. I mean, DC strip-mined the hell out of his Green Lantern stuff, and Sleeper is considered highly regarded, and... Dow was the bad guy in him. And Lord knows that seemed to literally shit out secret organizations when the New 52 started. Though, if Dow was written even close to his Wildstorm version and in intelligence, he'd likely have pitted most of the, those against each other and swooped in to take the equipment or people from them that would serve him and his goals. Of course, none of the elite were made part of either version of Stormwatch DC has for the DC New either. I always found that odd. And let me put this on pause again and say, you know what? That actually is a very good point. The fact that we haven't seen something from the Elite, even if it's just Manchester Black, and even if it's, I don't know, maybe like a flashback storyline to when Clark was a teenager or something like that, and it's kind of like maybe like a sort of Smallville copycat, like a Smallville TV show copycat where, uh, you know, Clark has to square off with, Manchester, or fuck it, I don't know, something, right? But the fact that we haven't seen anything at all from Manchester Black, anything at all from the Elite, that's always kind of confused me as well. Now, to be fair, it's not like the Elite are on my top five favorite Superman enemies list. They're just not. I kind of prefer the classics when it comes to that. But at the same time, I always liked the Elite, and I like the... Fa and I... I I'm of the opinion that any good villain needs to challenge not just the hero's physicality. He needs to change. He needs to, to challenge the the hero's psychology. He needs to challenge the hero's morality. He needs to challenge the hero's worldview. Whether you love or hate the elite, you have to acknowledge that they were designed specifically to to counter Superman's worldview. They had a very different morality than Superman did, and that's one of the reasons why I think they they made very good uh, villains. And um, anyway, so I could get going on that all day. To get back into Prime's email, though. Anyway, I don't hold whatever happened to the man, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, as a be-all and end-all Superman tale. Of course, I'll pretty much all of Alan Moore's body of work, apart from his reputation, which is probably good advice. I've read much of it and enjoyed it, but didn't consider it to be the greatest things ever. Well-crafted and interesting, yes. Well, most of it. There's one series 
I don't want to talk about. And it isn't his superhero stuff or League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That one I don't name was just odd in all the wrong ways. Now let me put this back on pause and saying, I'm sure you're not talking about Watchmen, but to me, Watchmen and Alan Moore will always be intertwined with each other. I'm well aware that Alan Moore had a resume before Watchmen. I'm also well aware that he had a resume after Watchmen. I mean, Supreme. I actually fucking really dig his work on Supreme. But Watchmen, to me, it's one of the few times when uh, the hype paid off. The hype behind something actually did pay off. Usually what happens in life is people talk shit about just how amazing a particular comic book is, a particular movie, or a particular book, or whatever else. And then finally, just to get everybody to shut the fuck up, you actually check it out for yourself and... Meh. You know? It's... It's just not what people made it out to be, you know? And Watchmen is one of the few things I ever read where I think that the that the majority opinion out there about it, the consensus opinion about it, by and large, is pretty true. And I don't necessarily hold all of Alan Moore's work up to that, but I do hold Watchmen up to that. And I guess to kind of... I don't to, to, to kind of draw an, an analogy, right? I've never been a real big Beatles fan. Now, don't get me wrong, I've got all the Beatles albums, just like the rest of you. But I've never been real big on the Beatles. And the reason for that is because the Beatles are just really, they're too far before my time. And so, to me, Beatles is oldies. I grew up on music that was written by people that had Beatles influences out their ears. All right, so I, I'm not one of those people who can instantly hear a Beatles song and say, oh my God, you know, what a breath of fresh air that, you know, these guys were. All the stuff I listened to, mostly, especially when I was in high school, I'm kind of of the opinion that every song that you hear on the radio is a Beatles song. Now, it may or may not be the Beatles who are playing it. It may or may not be the Beatles who wrote it. But let's cut the shit. It's a Beatles song. Now, just because I'm willing to give them that, I don't give any other band that, but I will give the Beatles that. That doesn't mean that I see the same thing in the Beatles that I think that probably hardcore Beatles fans do. Here's an example. One of my favorite guitar solos of all time is Achilles' Last Stand. It's a Led Zeppelin song off of their album Presence, and the song is Achilles' Last Stand. And I think the guitar solo goes on for like a minute or like two minutes or something like that. And it's just a really fucking cool solo. And Jimmy Page, in my opinion, he's got a metric fuck ton of badass guitar solos in, in his history. I think probably the most famous guitar solo that he ever did was Stairway to Heaven. But he has a lot of fucking guitar solos. And if you ask me, Achilles' Last Stand from Led Zeppelin's Presence album... It's up there in his top five best he ever did. And I'm not saying that guitar solos are the end-all, be-all, and if you don't have a solo, well, fuck you. I'm just saying that that's something that I'm aware of, just because that's something that I've sort of grown up with. A lot of songs have fucking guitar solos. And I'm at a serious fucking loss to think of anything the Beatles ever recorded 
where I can sit back and say, you know what, that guitar solo was fucking awesome. I just don't, I, I don't see it, right? I don't see what the hype is with the Beatles. They've been hyped up to me my entire life. And don't get me wrong, look, I like some of their songs. I like them a lot, in fact. But this whole idea of being like this huge, like, hardcore Beatles fan, that's never going to be me, all right? I just don't see what the hype is there. And same thing could have happened, to bring it all back to the point, the same kind of thing could have happened with Alan Moore and Watchmen, right? This thing that people have built up to you literally your entire life, right? I think I was probably collecting comics for about, I don't know, probably about five years before I finally read Watchmen, right? Now, keep in mind, I came up in a time and place in comics when Watchmen, as far as publications are concerned, was old news. It was old news, all right? It had long since come and gone, made its splash, and people fucking jizzed their pants over it. But this whole idea of it being, you know, the best that comics has to offer, which, by the way, I don't believe, but, again, this is one of those things that the snooterati outside world seem to all think... As far as it being the best that comics has to offer, I never thought that. But when I finally did sit down and read it, even though I read stuff at that point that was very heavily Watchmen-influenced in terms of how to tell a story and all that stuff, I could still see how different Watchmen was from everything that came before. And I think a good part of the reason for that is because I read a shitload of Silver Age comics when I was a kid. Now, I don't think I I was then, or for that matter, am now, some kind of big-time Golden Age or Silver Age or even Bronze Age expert. But I'm very, I'm very conversant with comics spanning basically from the debut of Superman going right on through, you know? And that's, I think, one of the main reasons why I could read Alan Moore and how he did Watchmen, and appreciate the fact that, you know what, this was so fucking different. Now, in some ways, it's sort of business as usual now, by which I mean at the time that I read it, that was very much the way fucking basically every comic book was written. The fact that it was sort of business as usual by that point, I could still see the originality of it. And so, this is... Like I said, boy, this is a hell of a digression, but um, this is one of those times when I've read something that, for whatever reason, just gets all the hype, all the attention, all the love, all that shit, and for once in life, it fucking measured up. Nobody was more surprised about it than me, but fucking, he brought home the bacon on that one. So, anyway, to bring it all back into the uh, Fanboy Must Prime email, though. And he, obviously, he dropped off talking about Alan Moore. And on Superman before his, his post-crisis reboot. To this day, I'm still shocked that Lois Lane being knocked up by DC's Popeye pastiche Captain Strong and getting an abortion is so mute and quiet and unraged about by fanboys. I mean, they can complain about far smaller stuff than, well, that. That it's so unknown and buried just surprises me as it just is nothing you'd expect DC to ever do, and I would actually kind of have to agree with that. Now, getting back into it. On the Electric Superman stuff, the only person who might have had some room to complain would be Grant Morrison writing 
JLA is they pretty much didn't tell him about that massive change happening to the Man of Steel. I mean, that sort of change is not something you leave the writer of the Justice League out for a major character in that book, though he tried to make the most of it once he finally got caught up. I'm going to put his uh, email on pause here and say, you know, I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you want Grant Morrison to know when he's writing Justice League of America that, hey, Superman is going to have a completely different costume, a completely different personal appearance, a completely different range of powers, all that stuff. You know, that's something that you want to tell him about. But, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily the point that you're arguing, but the idea of him having some kind of a say about that in terms of what the Superman office is up to, that's where I have to get off the bus you're driving. Now, I may be putting words in your mouth on that one, and if I am, I apologize, but that's what I'm taking from this. If you mean just giving him a heads up a little while in advance, well... Honestly, I don't see I don't see why. I mean, he writes the stories he needs to write. I, I guess tell him about it a month or two early, but other than that, whatever, you know? And something else, this isn't something that just popped out of nowhere. I mean, I think this was announced before Justice League of America even started up. I could be wrong, but I, I swear to think it was commonly known that something fucking big was going to happen with Superman and obviously it turned out to be the electric Superman but the something was going to happen with Superman in 1997 and we knew about that back in 1996 I swear to think something like that was up so I find it hard to believe that any of this would have caught Grant Morrison off guard but as I say I kind of have philosophical problems with the tail wagging the dog The Justice League of America, I understand as a book, it's one of DC's premier titles. And so, in the hierarchy of things, that comic book shouldn't dictate the direction of what the the solo comics are doing. But, maybe it does. I don't know. But I just kind of have problems with a book that's basically supposed to be the greatest hits of the DC universe. And that's... As far as marketing and PR, that's what the Justice League of America is to me. Just, you know, kind of the DC Universe's greatest hits. And leaving something as important as what the Superman books aren't, or for that matter, are going to do, for the year or two years or however long the Electric Superman stuff lasted, leaving that up in some way or another to Grant Morrison, I've got problems with that just because if he wants to have a say on that, Fucking he should write Superman. But until then, get out of my fucking face, all right? I, look, you write Justice League of America, and yay, whatever, I, that's not the point, you know? You don't have a right to dictate what the individual comics are doing, what the Batman office is doing, what Wonder Woman's doing, Superman, The Flash, wh- whoever, Green Lantern, whoever. And so, I'm, I'm again, I, I hate to think that I'm putting words in your mouth here. So please, if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, if I'm interpreting you wrongly, please correct me. But that's what I thought you were saying. So, you know, if that turns out to be wrong, mea culpa. Humblest apologies. But anyway, moving back on with um, Fanboyimus Prime's email. I don't mind Superman being flawed and not perfect. Of course... 
when you find out about the Silver Age stuff, oh man. Superman would have been better off with Wonder Woman in that era. Then again, that was the era of Lois Lane, Lana Lang, Steve Trevor, who were pretty much utter jerks and about as useful as using spitwads on Galactus. Now, <coughs> that's actually kind of, that, that, that's, that's very true, but I don't know. The idea, first off, I'm, I'm, I've never really been, I don't know, I've never really been big on the idea of pairing Wonder Woman up with Superman in the first place. I've, I've always, it, it always just felt, felt like, I don't know, obvious, you know? But the other thing is, I mean, really, what would they have in common? You know, I happen to think that any relationship, or at least, let me, actually, you know what, let me even put that on pause and just walk it back real quick. Any relationship that I've ever been a part of, and any relationship that I would say it was in any way successful, always started out with common ground. And this didn't mean that she had to like comics or else fuck her. Not so much that, but we needed to kind of... It's it's hard to put into words because, you know, everybody's relationship is pretty unique. But there just needed to be common ground there. And literally, Superman and Wonder Woman are... They're from different worlds. They come just physically, biologically, they come from different planets. They come from different societies they have different world views and if you take the the religious world view of both of them to the logical conclusion they're very different religions all of that and i just never saw what would possibly sustain superman and wonder woman beyond at most a one-night stand and i couldn't picture superman ever having a one-night stand to begin with but if they were to ever have any kind of quote unquote relationship, that's about as much as they, as I could ever see those two doing. I just, I just don't see what Superman and Wonder Woman would really have in common. Now, I don't mean that to be a shot across the bow at the New Fifty Two and all the stuff that's going on right now, especially to the people who are enjoying that stuff. Look, if you're reading Superman right now and he's shagging Wonder Woman and you're just an, this is into the world for you these are the greatest comics you've ever read dude you know what I'm happy for you All right, I wish I could say that I envy you I would love to be able to love the Superman comics that are coming out right now I just fucking can't All right, so please don't take this as me shitting all over the new 52 because I don't like the new 52 I've shit on it before but I'm not shitting on it right now and I'm certainly not shitting on the people that like it so anyway don't put any more credibility into that than it's really worth. So, anyway, moving on. I found the JLA and more Swamp Thing to be, well... Why I'd slap Vertigo for keeping Swamp Thing and such out of the DCU. That's an interesting thing. I never cared for that sort of thing. It's a shared universe, and by God, I'd treat it as a shared universe. Hell. Constantine, they tried, to keep, they tried keeping away from other books, even in the Vertigo line like Doom Patrol, because it had ruined his quote-unquote realism. They were high on something, given that I looked at what happened in the Hellblazer book, and realism sure wasn't the right word. And given John and Swamp Thing took part in Crisis on Infinite Earths, I definitely placed them as part of the DC universe, and anyone that believes otherwise on that 
either didn't read the old issues, is a self-delusional liar, or frankly was reading Vertigo to seem adult and mature. I'd personally place mature with manure. And let's talk about that for just a minute. I'm putting your email back on pause here. Um, I see your argument because, yeah, those characters were part of Crisis on Uninfinite Earths. And so there is a sense in which, of all characters, they kind of ought to be part of the, the, uh, the mainstream universe. And you know what? For a while, at least, Swamp Thing was. But one of the things that always... God, I'm going to sound like such a fucking hipster when I say this, but just hear me out, okay? Hear me out before you throw your iPod out the window, okay? That's all I ask. Or your Zune, if you're Michael Bailey. Just hear me out before you, you smash something, is basically what I'm telling you, right? As hipster as it may sound, part of me actually kind of likes the fact that the Vertigo books ever existed in the first place. For one thing... I like the fact that DC Comics had a mature reader's line. And I mean a full mature reader's line. I realize that Legends of the Dark Knight wasn't approved by the Comics Code. And whatever. But the Vertigo comics, they... they it's almost, It was almost like they had a mission statement, right? DC published a lot of comics, I think starting in the late 80s and early 90s. And again, Legends of the Dark Knight, I think, was one of them that did not have a Comics Code uh, Authority logo on the cover. And so because of that, could not be sold in uh, retail outlets. They could, you could only get it at comic book stores. And it, it felt to me like the idea of a Vertigo line of comics was taking all of that, that same type of mentality, if not those comics themselves, taking that to sort of uh, the next level. Right, where not just content, but more, I guess, themes or art styles or something like that. It was a, it, it could be kind of a dumping ground for people that have something less than mainstream styles or something less than mainstream, for that matter, to say. And I very much appreciated the fact that Vertigo was there to help them. And when I was a kid, I'll be honest with you. The, the, the stink eye that I would get from people whenever I would show up at the comic book shop to pick up, I don't know, the new Man of Steel or Action Comics or whatever Superman comic came out that week or, or Robin or the Avengers or whatever I was collecting at the time. Getting the stink eye from those fucking goth douchebags, you know, covered in tattoos and piercings and, you know, they've got their nose pierced and that's connected to their pierced eyebrow, which is connected to their pierced tongue. Fucking connected to the, by chain to their fucking pierced cock. The next thing you know, they've got a pierced asshole, pierced toes, pierced nipples. I mean, anyway, and they're going to look at me like, hey, I'm, I'm the one with the problem here, right? Fucking dicks. But anyway, getting the stink eye from people like that, no, that was not any fun at all. All right, I'll be the first to admit that. But at the same rate, I still like the fact that comics were out there that could appeal at least to them. I don't like the way that they behaved at all. But these are people that otherwise wouldn't pick up a comic if their lives depended on it. And they're a bunch of hipster fucking prick douchebags, all right? I'd never say otherwise. But their money is just as green as anybody else's. And I like the fact that DC had a pretty fucking diverse 
range of comics, you know, and it started in the 80s, and I think just fucking went into overdrive in the 90s. You know, people always want to talk about how fucking awesome Marvel is, all right? Okay, motherfucker. Where is Marvel's Why the Last Man? Where's Marvel's Watchmen? Where's Marvel's, for that matter, Dark Knight Returns? Where's Marvel's, oh, what's another one? Sandman. Where's their crisis on Unfitted Earths? You know, DC, you know, whether you love them or you hate them, especially in the 80s and 90s, you kind of have to give them that they were willing to take risks and chances with their material that fucking Marvel, they just weren't, ever. On the best day Marvel ever had, they didn't, it would never have occurred to them to publish a book like, like Hellblazer or like Doom Patrol or Constantine or anything else from uh, the Vertigo books. You know, shit, it would never have occurred to them. I mentioned Legends of the Dark Knight just a while ago. Never would have fucking occurred to them to publish that either. So, look, dude, completely understand your point that, you know, you're trying to make here. I just, I just don't know that I'm completely on board with that. Again, I don't, I didn't like being, I don't know, frowned upon by, you know, those creepy goth chicks that used to hang out in comic book stores waiting for the new Sandman to come out. I didn't like that any more than anybody else, but... You know, at the same rate, it, it to, me, to me, what that ultimately proved was how dynamic DC uh, DC Comics was with, with their material. That they could a- appeal to such a cross-section of society in ways that I really don't think Marvel ever could. So, anyway, I've been rambling here. I'm going to take a drink off my water. Mm-hmm. So, getting back into Fanboy Miss Prime's email... As for Dream War flying under your radar, Magnus, personally, I think DC's marketing marketing of it was uh, out taking a leak instead of doing its job, instead of it being on your end. I really don't recall much marketing for it, and really, it should have, as it was something I promote as a major event. Fucking that makes two of us prime. I would too. As for me and that James guy, we're not working together. As much fun as that'd probably be. As for Beast Wars and Beast Machines, that was the 90s reboot of the franchise by Kenner after Hasbro bought them up. Beast Wars especially, given they couldn't afford... Dozens of characters kept the cast size small and character-focused in the stories. They grew and changed, and some of them died. Various things like Transformers' souls being called Sparks came from it. And fuck, I did not know that. I didn't know that. That's actually really fucking cool. Anyway, getting back into the email. Beast Machines. Wasn't as good. DiDio told Marv Wolfman, who was the first writer for it, to not have to tie it into the continuity of Beast Wars. And it showed as only one of the characters felt to be built on what came before. Sounds familiar to for Didio, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, it does. Oh, and trust me, animals are a lot better for things like transformable robots to turn them into than rocks. <laughs> yeah, I won't find that easy to believe. No, I'm not kidding on that, as the GoBots had the Rock Lords. Holy shit, I did not know this. Trust me, when I try to make a joke, it's not to involve... Something that is utter insanity, or at least to try to avoid doing that. And I just got a text message. As I say, I'm not doing any editing on this one, so... And that's from Stacy. Okay, well, I'll get back to that. 
Oh, and speaking of the GoBots, Hasbro bought out Tonka and therefore owns the GoBots. And yes, they have had some crossovers in the comics and stories written for the official Transformers convention known as BotCon. And all that Transformers talk, amusing, does tie into something Michael said as he, instead of Man of Steel number one, got Transformers number 21. Oh, I forgot about that story, but yeah, yeah, he, he told me about that in the show. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is to the Silver and Bronze Age, as is trying to tie in the original Gen 1 Transformers cartoon to the body of work of James Roberts has done on the Transformers for IDW. And again, I'm going to have to take your word for that. Uh, if you say so, I'll believe you. Though Roberts' stuff is tied to the IDW Gen 1 verse isn't trying to be tied to the original cartoon in the slightest. Different take, different universe, and very different sensibilities in the writing. Which isn't to say said take and I are in complete agreement, as of course my own sensibilities differ as well. Sorry about getting way off topic at the end. Glad you enjoy my emails and I'll uh, keep on trying writing to the show. Um, th no, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, your conversations are obviously conversation stimulators because we are now nearing the 40-minute uh, mark, and I've only just gotten through the first mail, so uh, you tell me how good you are. So, let's see. Next. This, all this again, comes from Fanboyimus Prime. The title of it is Punching Reality Again. And Fanboyimus writes, Greetings, Trennis. You put down the gauntlet for things you wish to hear from the loyal followers they wish ended, and I have such a thing. And let me put this on pause and say, yeah, that was actually something I put up on Facebook, and I think I even put it in a um, an episode that I put out. If there's basically a trend in fandom that you would love to see the end of tomorrow, let me know about it, basically is what it can, comes down to. TrennisMagnus at gmail.com. Getting back to Fanboy Miss Prime's email, he writes... Loyal followers, they wish ended, and I have such a thing. The first is invincible enemies and comic stories. I don't mean foes with incredible healing factors like Sabretooth that can take an extreme amount of damage. I mean foes that the story acts like they are invincible or unstoppable in the story, like the Dark Ultimates or the guys behind uh, the California governor in the story arc that, uh, that was in the, the last Ultimate series which I have not read, so... I've read Ultimates, just not the last series. Or the crime syndicate of the Forever Evil story arc. Foes that try to come off as unbeatable or invincible, yet by the time it ends, they show they were full of it and egotistical pricks that were taken down like they were chumps. It, to me, feels like boring storytelling... And their fall on their butts in the final issue pretty much ruins any threat they were. I don't want the villains to be easy, nor do I mind them having an inflated opinion of themselves. I just want them, if they really are incredibly dangerous, for it to not be a beatdown like a bitch ending. Or for them to have some lasting effect instead of not matter at all. And I've, I'm going to put this on pause. I've actually got a little bit of a theory on that. It seems that like a lot of, especially and especially the event type of storylines, and I, and I think maybe a good example of this would be Fear itself. 
and maybe a really good example of what you're talking about is the big bad of that book. I fucking I can't even remember I can't even remember that character's name. But it feels like you were kind of talking about fear itself here, or at least what you were saying could have been applied to fear itself. And basically comics well, let's face it, the idea of a monthly comic book that comes out and tells a complete story unto itself, by and large, those days tend to be over. Now, yeah, there are exceptions to that here and there, but by and large, the idea of the one-and-done storyline is basically over with. Every or A lot of things these days are basically geared for trade paperbacks. And the reason for that is because Joe Schmuck Average goes out and buys a trade paperback, Whereas only the the comic book fan collecting community buys the monthly issues. And there's more of them than there are of us. Now, where the rubber meets the road on that is that that affects the type of stories that you're able to tell in, in, in your book. And the sensibilities that most people have from this type of storytelling, it's actually a lot closer to a movie than it is a, a TV show. My, my view of it is that your average monthly comic book, and I mean comics at their best, at their most pure, comics are sort of like episodes of a TV show where you get an episode here, an episode here, an episode here, an episode, you know, on and on and on. And the average episode of any TV show what that has to do in terms of character development or advancing plot or whatever else is actually pretty fucking minimal, right? You can have character studies, but you don't need to have drastic amounts of character uh, advancement. Make sense? You don't need to do that with an episode of a TV show or, as is my view... Comics before the the trade paperback era. You just didn't need to do that. But by the time you start getting into trade paperbacks, these things have to appeal not only to hardcore collectors, of which there are fewer and fewer every year, they also have to appeal to Joe Sixpack. And there's a sense in which, at this point, it's now carrying the type of storytelling responsibilities and character development responsibilities and other things that you could kind of compare it to a movie now. And what do you see in a movie? Well, you need to be introduced to characters. They need to be they need to start the story off in a certain way with a certain type of opinion or worldview or whatever else, and then they need to end the story having changed their minds. In between something really fucking big needed to happen. Something to justify waiting all of this time for a new film, something to justify the cost of a film, so on and so on and so on. So, comics have, they've stopped being sort of, I guess you could say sort of serialized, or sorry, I should say uh, episodic stories. No, actually I had it right the first time. No, serialized. Basically an ongoing narrative that unfolds each month, which is a serial they've kind of moved away from the idea of sort of serialized storytelling, and they've gone more in now for episodic storytelling where everything kind of stands apart from everything else, right? So Fear itself 
doesn't necessarily require you to have require you to have read I don't know Secret War or Civil War or Siege or whatever else. You know, you don't necessarily need to have read that all of those things in order to get I would say the big picture of what fear itself was up to, right? And so what that means is the villain of the piece, and this is where I'm finally going to deal with what you're talking about here, the villain of the piece has got to be one bad motherfucker, right? And he's got to be the most deadly and dangerous thing the world has ever seen. I mean, this guy, this guy he just he farts danger and wickedness and all that stuff. Evil. And then in the last couple of pages of the final issue, he gets the shit beaten out of him by Thor or something like that. And I think that, and again, I'm not excusing the practice. I'm just saying I think I can see where that's coming from. I agree with you, actually. I, I'm kind of sick of, I'm actually very fucking sick of this whole mentality. I mean, I really wish the comic book industry would understand there are no new fans. Okay? I'm just going to let that sink in. There are no new fans. Now, there are a lot of people who watch fucking movies and stuff now. But the idea of new comic book collectors? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, maybe new comic book collectors are made every year. But here's the thing. They're not... <clears> Hold <throat> oh, let me get a drink off my water. <clears throat> here's the thing. New comic book collectors are not being born at a fast enough rate to replace the ones that are that are going away, either that are giving up the hobby or they're dying or whatever else. There aren't enough new fans to replace the old fans, <clears throat> is what it comes down to. And so I kind of wish... Actually, let me rephrase that. Using the distribution methods that DC and Marvel have such a fucking boner for, there are no new fans. <clears throat> not a... Like three ninety nine uh, as their cover price. Believe me, there won't be a whole lot of new fans for that. It's fucking ridiculous. <sighs> now, now I don't even fucking remember what I was gonna say. God, I hate cover prices. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are no new fans, and so what I wish is the comic book industry would just fucking wake up to that, okay? And basically just stop trying to throw everything in the fucking kitchen sink into these big event storylines and stuff, because it's, I mean, and to be fair, it's gotten a little bit better, all right? I'll give them that. It's not as, we don't, I don't think this, the past couple of years have been as event-driven as the years before that. I mean, I think from like, maybe about 2003 until about, shit, 2011, that was such an event-driven period in comics I don't, I mean, I hope we never see anything like that ever again. But it was as if the philosophy was to throw everything in the kitchen sink into these storylines, hoping to appeal to hardcore comic book collectors as well as Joe Sixpack, that I don't think the stories were necessarily as powerful as they could have been. Now, yeah, the exception, you know, there are exceptions to that. I, I'm the guy in the room that seemed to enjoy Civil War. Now, I'm also the guy in the room that was never hardcore Marvel to begin with. So just keep that in mind. But at the end of the day, it just kind of feels like the comic book industry is just living in denial about so many things, especially 
their own future. I don't know that we even have much of a future to look forward to as far as comics are concerned. Well, anyway, I'll, maybe I'll make that into its own little spin-off episode. You know, what is the lifespan of the industry? Anyway, actually, you know what? Fuck it. No, I'm going to turn this around. I want all of you to send me an email. You answer that question. What is the lifespan of the comic book industry, right? <clears throat> What's the shelf life? What do we give it? Does the comic book industry have 10 years, 20, 5? How much longer is the comic book industry going to last? And what do you think is going to kill it? All right? Send me an email. I want to find out about this. I want to know what do you think is going to be the death of the comic book industry. So, and when. And so, anyway, so that's that. Getting back into the email. Which leads to my annoyance I had with the Ultimates since the last series where just Hawkeye, Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor were the only members to not just vanish off into the void somewhere. Invisible Woman was still considered a guest star at the Marvel Wiki when she, frankly, was a fifth member of the team. Yeah, I, yeah. I have no problems with her being a member of the Ultimates. She's powerful, smart, and held her own in the crazy battles the Ultimates got into. What I didn't like was Spider-Girl, Statue, Giant-Man 2, Captain Britain, and more just up and vanishing from the book. Spider-Girl, I think, was an ultimate Spider-Man from time to time. And if I'm thinking of the right character, yeah, I, I think she was actually introduced in the clone. Like, they're, they're ver the ultimate version of the clone saga. If I'm thinking of the right character, I think that's where she came from. I think. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's where she came from. But seriously... They didn't even say where most of those characters went when they could have used their help. Ben Grimm was supposedly on other missions, but that's kind of crap when they needed the help and he was nowhere to be found. I mean, it's the Ultimate Universe, and if they offered those other Ultimates, I'd be less annoyed. I also think the Captain America as President story for the Ultimate Verse was far too short, and frankly, not sure what they intended with it. Um, I'm going to put your email on pause. I Look, full disclosure, I never read that story, so maybe I'm the last one that, would, uh, that should comment on it, but I was actually thinking about it at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, reviewing that for this show, and um, honestly, I mean, I've heard... I've actually heard very split opinions about that. Nobody has said that it was just okay. There are people out there who are fucking in love with it. They think this is the greatest Captain America story there's ever been. And then there are people who look at this as being damn near the epitome of what you don't do with Captain America. So I'm actually kind of... When, when, when opinions are that polarized, I almost can't help but want to read the story myself and just get an idea of what it was all about. And to get back into the email, because I really am rambling here... Yeah... The Ultimate versus last batch before Galactus showed up has just not been the way I would do it. Yes, I'm a very amateur writer and a fanfic writer, but seriously, when I'm going, you know, I think I could do your job better. And this is better than Chris getting creepy. Then we had Howard Hughes and his fake biography. Well... I've been part of the World Newton group of writers. It's basically that a crossover universe where the main conceit, as written in Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life by Philip Jose Farmer, where there was a meteor that changed several 
carriage of people and their drivers in world Newton, England, that led to a genetic splendor, quote-unquote, and such. Plus, that Tarzan and, Dark, and uh, Doc Savage were real, and the various stories, to one degree or another, were exaggerated or altered by the writers. Fair enough. Okay, well, uh, I guess if what we're doing is laying out credibility here... <laughs> Oh, and speaking of, I'm going to take another drink off my Coke because my throat is just killing me now. And then we get into Tarzan's time travel from Time's Last Gift. And Philip Jose Farmer's weird, not sure exactly what the right word is for versions of Doc Savage and Tarzan and A Feast Unknown, Lord of the Trees, and The Mad Goblin. And fuck, neither do I. I have no idea what you're talking about here. I'm just reading shit now. Anyway, <clears throat> let's just say it gets weird and has Howard Hughes be Iron Man. Holy fuck. Historical fact, crossovers, and all kinds of crazy stuff is the hidden history weaved together by various people. As for me, I just added the Transformers into the mix. Oddly, the whole Sector 7, uh, 7 having the Michael Bay movies produced, the fact for the IDW version of the original Transformers under Simon Furman's pen had them fighting in disguise on Earth and such add to the idea of Transformers really being robots in disguise. And again, I'll take your word for it because I haven't read that stuff. Unlike their usual MO, which is which is being about as subtle as a, using a rocket launcher on a porta potty while someone on the evening news is recording the event... <laughs> Which kind of leads into Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Says a lot when there's a bunch of disclaimers that were in it. And actually, that kind of surprised me as well. How many people were buying into it? I don't know. I just... So much of that, I think, can be chalked up to mass hysteria. But anyway. And then we go kind of off topic. At least for the book. But the spirit of how such a thing is created and talk about Facebook's various groups and such fits perfectly well. Then there's talk about the media. At the hour and a half mark, not sure why you even claim the book, or rather I goofed that up, not sure why you even claimed that the book of hoaxes was the subject matter of, uh, of the show as it got le left in the dust. <clears throat> that doesn't mean I'm complaining, just that the conversation evolved into something else entirely. And I'm actually going to answer that. Um, basically, the reason I do the big book of whatever, that big book report series with Chris Honeywell. <clears throat> I've always liked the big book series. I, I, I kind of have a soft spot for nonfiction comics. I think as an industry comic, the, the comics industry hasn't really done as much with nonfiction as maybe they could. But the other thing is uh, Chris Honeywell himself. Um... He and I have a lot of differences between us. Um, we're different ages. And there's almost a sense in which we're different generations. We have very different worldviews from one another. Very different political views from what I can, from what I can gather. Uh, very different religious views, again, from what I can gather. And so there's a lot of... Um, he brings a really complimentary quality to this. He fills in a lot of gaps on things that I can't. And honestly, um, 
it sounds like he's had a pretty interesting life. And so because of that, he has a perspective on things that I don't. All right. Or at least a different perspective. Put it that way. Uh, a different perspective. And whenever he and I start talking about these things, whether it's urban legends or hoaxes, uh, conspiracies, losers, whatever else, he's bringing uh, an awareness to things that on my best day I could never do. I could never do. And so whenever things like that get left in the get left behind like they do, like the book of hoaxes, the big book of hoaxes, you know, yeah, that really got fucking left behind after a while. And the reason is because I view that book as a catalyst to enable conversation. The big book report in general is part of my sort of weekend series of podcasts. I don't know what else to call them. But basically, I've got six episodes full, you know, that the, they're dedicated to whatever bullshit I feel like talking about. But then the seventh and the eighth, the eighth episodes have dev, have a dedicated subject matter. And it's basically a chance for me to just kind of hang out and shoot the shit a little bit. And that's just the way that I look at it. And so I don't feel necessarily as beholden to the big book report to stay on topic as I would maybe for other things, you know. So now I'm of the opinion that conversations, which is really, when you think about it, what podcasts really are, conversations go where they mostly need to go, and the idea of trying to lead it kills it. you got to be flexible and let things go where they organically want to go. And that, to me, is what the Big Book Report is ultimately all about. So, And I'm glad that you're not complaining. I understand that you're not complaining, but... I just kind of wanted to give you that little bit of rationalization, just kind of give you it to you, you know, kind of give you the kind of explain the other side, I guess, is maybe the way to put it. So anyway, getting back into fanboy Miss Prime's email, you guys forgot the time the news sources uh, couldn't tell a 12 inch action figure that was being held hostage with the Arabic just being gibberish, though I'll not give him crap on the second part. The first part, however, I'd never stop given it clearly was an action figure. I'm not sure I'm parsing this right. The first part, however, I'd never stop, given it clearly was an action figure. Now, I think I know what you're talking about there. It's basically a, uh, like a Ken doll, uh, like a Barbie from the Barbie toys. It was a, a Ken doll that somebody basically modified to look like it was wearing military fatigues or something. And somehow people thought that that was a real soldier that somehow fucking got taken hostage. Yeah, I remember I remember seeing it. And um yeah, that was just that was weird. That was really weird. Um next we got a sea serpent, a mini Loch Ness as Chris put it. One weird thing on Nessie. With all the radar and such viewing of that lake, somehow a boat that had sunk to the bottom had gone missing and had to be discovered many years later. If a lake as explored as that can have a boat sink and go missing, one can understand why finding or disproving a giant sea serpent is such a pain in the butt. And honestly, I did not know that. And of course, <clears throat> and of course, there's another one in North America in Lake Champlain, which you bring up later, and indeed Chris did. On the Jersey Devil, supposedly people saw it and it jumped on their house. 
and again, that kind of feeds into the some of the eyewitness testimony that I was talking about. And one guy seemed to troll using things he started up himself. Yeah, that was, um, was that Joey Skaggs? I think that's what it was called in that book. And get friends to help with that trolling. Crazy and amusing, actually. Yes, it was. It was fucking hilarious. Please let the term weak sauce die. Seriously, how did that come about? Someone saying that something bad was like a weak sauce? Doesn't really make sense to me. I can only think it's something to do with cooking, honestly, is what I think. It's basically supposed to add flavor, but it doesn't because it's a weak sauce. But to get back to his email, yeah, sorry, this one was a bit random and kind of glossed over a few points, but it was still interesting, and hope you enjoyed the email. Uh, fuck, dude, I love your emails, absolutely, keep them coming. Um, the one thing I, the one thing I, I just want to make clear is that, you know, even when I'm, I go off on one of my wild tangents it's not necessarily that i disagree with you or whatever else it's just that you bring up so many other things that you know it's got to be it, it's got to be talked about and so yeah by all means i really appreciate it so oddly enough there's actually more email that i could go through here but um i'm actually running out of time and i've i've gone over an hour as it is right now so uh, but one thing i do want to bring up is a um, new itunes review uh, because I haven't gotten one in a while. So this this was written on January the 24th, titled Insightful, Funny, and All-Around Great, written by Tom Panarese. He writes, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is one of the best solo pop culture podcasts I've listened to in quite a while. Magnus has a real insight into what he's talking about, and even when you don't agree with his opinions on what he's covering, you're at least interested. The show takes on a nice variety of topics, and Magnus is not afraid to shy away from materials that others haven't touched or have a disdain for. So the Schumacher Batman films, for instance. Man, people really responded to that. Start with episode one and work your way forward. You will not be disappointed. And that was the end of the iTunes review. By And so, uh, Tom... Actually, let me... actually go back even further than, than this. Um, for those of you who don't know, Tom Panarese, he actually hosts um, a couple of podcasts. One is In Country, which I, as I recall, I think that's about the Marvel comic book series called The Nom. And honestly, that's about as much as I can say about it because I don't really know a whole lot about The Nom as a comic book. So other than, I think Frank Castle popped up in a few issues, but other than that, I couldn't tell you. But he he hosts another podcast, and this one's called Pop Culture Affidavit. Now, this is the mother of all coincidences, because what happened was he sent me a, a Facebook friend, uh, friend request um, and asked to join my uh, the uh, Trennis Magnus Facebook or yeah, the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality Facebook group on the exact same fucking day that. I downloaded his, uh, yeah, episode 22, 1994, the most important year of the 90s. That episode of uh, his uh, podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit. Now, um, it was just a really fucking weird coincidence, right? And so, you know, I don't know how to account for that other than to say that maybe it's a thing where, you know, maybe great minds think alike. I don't know. But anyway, it was just a really weird, bizarre, fucked up coincidence. But now I'd listened to um, 
I'd listen to. Oops. I know I'd listen to Tom Panarese whenever he did a, a guest episode or two on uh, views from the long box. But and no offense, Tom, for whatever reason, and I think it was because I had so many podcasts already to listen to that the idea of finding another one just wasn't in the cards. Put it that way. So. Um, didn't I, I didn't bother checking out Pop Culture Affidavit. Not until, like I said, it was a couple of days ago. I guess around about the time of January the 24th. And the episode, uh, or at least the first episode I checked out, was episode 20, uh, 22, entitled 1994, The Most Important Year of the 90s. And that was basically an introductory thing that uh, Tom did for uh, this... I, what. I, if I understand what he's saying uh, correctly, this is going to be a year-long series where he talks about all the shit that um, went on in uh, 1994. And there was a lot, some of which was good, some of which maybe wasn't so good, but nevertheless, there was a lot of shit that went on in 1994, and uh, he's going to be talking about that this year. And uh, this episode, number 22 of his show, Pop Culture Affidavit, was all about... Uh, setting a context for that, basically introducing what that's going to all be about and everything else. And so I listened to that, and that was fucking great. And now I get the idea, or at least I got the idea, that episode 22 is maybe not going to... And Tom, don't take this as an insult, but episode 22 isn't going to be as good as episode 23 is going to be. And episode 24 and everything else that you do about 1994. Because the hardest thing, I would imagine, if you do one of those big series and then you have to do the introductory episodes, the weakest episode of the bunch is always going to be probably the introductory show. And then after that, you can get as specific as you want to get. And then, you know, just really get in the blood and guts of whatever subject that you're talking about. But you got to do that introductory thing first. And so that was the assumption that I made, that the future shows are going to be you know, for as good as episode 22 was, future shows are going to be just light years beyond it because he doesn't have to go through the trouble of introducing the shit anymore. He's already done it. And that was kind of proven, not because episode 23 has come out yet, at least as I record this, but I went back and listened to um, episode 15, One Savage Evening, which, speaking of Michael Bailey, he was a guest star on that. And it's basically, the it's sort of Michael and Tom saluting the... Uh, the directorial works of Savage Steve Holland. And to me, Savage Steve Holland is kind of the unsung auteur of the 1980s. You know, he was the guy that just, for whatever reason, never completely got his due because everybody was up John Hughes's ass or Cameron Crowe or anybody else. And for some reason, Savage Steve Holland just didn't, maybe it was just he didn't have the right press agent. I don't know what to tell you, but... Anyway, and, but, you know, that bullshit didn't fly with Pop Culture Affidavit, Tom Panarese. <clears throat> he brought in Michael Bailey, and they did nothing but spend about three hours or something like that fawning over uh, the works of Savage Steve Holland. And if you ask me, as far as directors in the 80s, he's as good as anybody and better than most. So that's that. And, yeah, that episode, it was just awesome on a cracker. I loved it. And... As you can imagine, I'm now part of the Pop Culture Affidavit True Believers. I subscribe to the podcast, and 
I've got several several more. I've actually just started his uh, episode, The Columbia House 13. Haven't really had a chance to dig into that very much yet because other things keep coming up. But if uh, all of this is an extremely long, fucking drawn-out way of saying that if you're not listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, in the end, you're just hurting yourself. All right? Listen to this show. It's fucking great. And, you know, honestly, Tom Panarese, he's got this perspective not just on comics or not just on movies or not just on music but i mean pop culture in general and so he's sort of the jack of all trades but the master of none and what that allows him to do is it basically he he can do a sort of all-encompassing podcast in ways that you know what i don't think just anybody could you know and so like i said i mean it's worth listening to check it out Satisfaction fucking guaranteed. I promise. If if you like weird, sort of offbeat, goofy discussion about, you know, not necessarily the mainstream of pop culture, this is the fucking show for you. So, anyway. So, I've gone for over an hour now. So, for a supposed email episode and feedback, I didn't even get through more than two emails and one iTunes review. But then there was only one iTunes review to be gone through. So, uh, but please, by all means, if you could uh, write some more iTunes reviews, and as always, feel free to send me more email and uh, listener feedback. You can reach me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just send me an email, and uh, by all means, um, I'm going to read it on the air. And by the way, that's, gonna, that's my disclaimer. If you send it to me, unless it, it's patently obvious that this is private correspondence this shit's getting read on the air so or on mic anyway since i'm not broadcasting so i'm not really on the air but you get the point and so i think that's that bye everybody see you next week okay so i think that's just about the end of that trentus magnus punches reality is a proud member of the two true freaks podcast network you can find the home for Trentus Magnus, punches reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>